0: What do you believe? What do you believe? And, and, and what in what you believe, does that determine, therefore, how you live? Uh, you might say, are your beliefs your convictions? That is, do you always strive to act, to respond to what you believe? It's not always the way, is it? There's a crisis, uh, many people would say, of conviction around us, in our culture. Uh, convictions that living out of what you believe. This is very opposed, isn't it, to that liberal, kind of relativistic way of thinking that we see in in much of the society in which we live. Oh, you believe a set of truths, you have a particular way uh, that you wish to live, but if a circumstance or a feeling um, kind of comes your way and you think, oh, well, that's more inviting, many people around us will say, well, I might believe that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head that way. It, it feels better. It looks a little more inviting in the short term. Many around us are just very compelled by what feels good, what looks good in the moment. Sadly, very sadly, uh, politicians seem to be a good example of this sometimes. Often they will act, they will lobby, uh, either according to a party line or to just keep their job. Because, you know, they are democratically voted in. That's, they, they want to keep their position in Parliament. It doesn't ma- matter whether they act against what they believe. What they know deep down to be true and right, often they will just go with what is popular Or what feels, uh, you know, might keep them in their post for a little bit longer. Can you imagine if William Wilberforce, for example, were to have ignored his convictions? Imagine if he hadn't lived in accordance with what he believed. Many will know William Wilberforce was the man who uh, fought for the abolition of slavery in this country. Yes, he was an MP. But he was also a Christian. Uh, He was a a man who had Christian convictions. And therefore he he ignored many of the people around him. Oh, they were very happy with the status quo. They were very happy to keep slavery in this country. But Wilberforce knew what he believed. And his convictions drew him to act in line with what he believed. He was a rare commodity then and he would be even a rarer commodity. Today, do we act in line with our convictions with what we believe? Think corporately for a second, if you like. Yeah, think of the church in this country. Many of you will know a variety of churches, whether you come from that church, uh, you know, from your parents, or wherever it is, you look around in the communities in which you live. Think about the church corporately for a moment. What is it that when a church turns its back on God's revealed truth in the Bible? It just wants to accommodate the culture around them. They're willing to change what they believe just to fit in. You you see it, don't you? All too often. Firstly, it begins to lose its distinctiveness. It becomes more like a social club, a bit of a country club that you might go and attend. But after a short time, a church like that begins to lose the very reason it had for existence. Now, you might be asking, why on earth have you begun this talk this way, uh, given what we've just heard? Well, let me give you a bit of context, because we haven't been in Galatians for a little (coughs) while. So Paul, throughout Galatians, has so far, very clearly and very strongly, he's been making the gospel, that good news about Jesus Christ, he's been making it known to the people in Galatia. He's been making clear their faith, their beliefs, that Jesus had given his life on a cross, taking all the justice that they deserve before God, to save us for life now and for an eternity in his good, eternal, heavenly kingdom. Paul now, though, when we get to chapter 4, is showing that the Galatians that the belief, the doctrine that he's been making clear for the first three or so chapters... He's now saying, guys, this has got to be lived out. Many of you have experienced or observed this kind of inseparable link between belief and behaviour. And that is what we're seeing in this kind of juncture in Galatians. He's going from what you believe to living it out. Now, often we cannot see what someone believes. You know, they may say one thing, but isn't it interesting? It's usually their behaviour, isn't it? that finally exposes what they really believe. Oh, someone can come to church and they can say all the right things. They might even put their hands up, not put their hands up, you know what I mean. You know, in home group, they might be able to get all the right answers, do all the prep. They may seem to believe in all the same gospel message that we do, but then their behaviour might just indicate what they really believe. They're just willing to compromise on what they say they believe because they want to act. They see something, they want to go that way. Act on that and not in line with what they believe. And this is kind of the analysis that Paul is making of the Galatian church in this passage. There's been a change in their behaviour, in their attitude towards Paul. I don't know if you saw it there. The Galatians, he says, they were once warm, they were welcoming of the truth of the gospel which he proclaimed. But now their convictions are shaken. Paul writes not only to expose their kind of wobbly faith, but to show how that's worked out in their lives. Sometimes we love to kid ourselves, and we do way too often. We love to kid ourselves that we think we can hide that disconnect between what we believe and how we live it out. We can't. As our behaviour changes, our belief begins to justify that. We begin to modify what we believe. And of course, vice versa. And Paul exposes this in the Galatians. But he also, throughout this little passage, it's wonderfully, he reveals himself, if you like, to them. See, you could read the opening three and a half chapters of Galatians and, and think that you were sitting in a lecture on theology. It's dense, isn't it? We've been in it for four months. It's dense. But now, what, you, what are you hearing? Just look, cast your eyes down. They're, they're words, aren't they? They're warm words. You're hearing a pastor speak now. He loves these people. He has great anguish, is one of the terms literally. He's maybe even weeping as he sees them turn. But in seeing how how Paul responds to this church and to the churches in Galatia, please understand this. That as you see Paul's anguish for the church, you are beginning to get a glimpse of, if you like, of the very heart of God himself, who's loved us, who's given us salvation in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross. Christians are, if you like, the dear children of God, to use that phrase that Paul uses in verse 19. You see, when we do not hold on to the convictions, the belief, that the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we begin to act out of line with our beliefs. If you want to see how God's heart responds, look at Paul as he weeps, as he's anguished about the Galatians turning from the gospel. And that's what they're doing. They're moving from the gospel that Paul has taught them. And therefore he very strongly is going to express his anguish over that. Therefore, practically, this passage, I think, gives us a really clear steer, not to just be kind of doctrinally correct. We've got everything lined up. We're that kind of church, aren't we? We we know exactly what to say and when to say, And, and everything's in our little framework. It's not just that he's saying. Paul isn't mechanistic here. I'm sure if Paul were to lead a church today, he would have all the right courses. He'd have all the right teaching. The one-to-ones would be hot as anything. All the Bible studies would be there with all the prep. Everything will be sorted. Those things are very good. But what he's showing here is that the relationships are key. The relationships. One commentator put it this way. He said, teaching should never be done at arm's length should be heart to heart. If you ever make someone feel like they're your little project, as you slip them into your busy ministry schedule of, you know, I can give you, give you 45 minutes there because I'm, I'm doing 80, 800 one-to-ones the rest of the week, you know, whatever it may be. I think you've lost the idea of what being a minister of the gospel really is. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study leader, or just a friend who longs for someone to know the goodness of the Lord Jesus as his death, through his death on the cross. This applies to all of us. Ministry is a people thing. It's, it's, it's expressed through people who love one another. Oh, we'll look at uh, it, more of this uh, in, in weeks to come. Why this, kind of, this pastoral loving rebuke is so important. I mean, you can see why it's so important. just cast your eyes forward to chapter 5 verse 1 as Paul kind of launches into that last section. It's there, he wants the Galatians to know, to know the freedom that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That freedom from the punishment that their sins deserve, the freedom to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to the glory to come. But also he says in chapter 5 verse 1, stand firm in it. That's why this is so key. So where are we heading today? I've put on your outlines there. He's outlining here, if you like, a contrast and compare. Two kinds of ministries. Two ways of going about making God known. Making the gospel known of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple. I'm just going to look at the ministry of Paul in these verses. And then the ministry of the false teachers who've been going around that church. Infiltrating the churches in Galatia. So there we go. Two ministries. The ministry of Paul. And the ministry of the false teachers. One encourages the church to marry belief and behaviour. To live in accordance with what you believe. And one has a disconnect between the two. Next week we'll look at the story of Hagar and Sarah at the end of chapter 4. And Paul uses that to illustrate this very point that he's making here. Really countering their arguments with their own argument. It's a brilliant bit of uh, logic and we'll see that next week. So let's look at these two ministries very briefly. There's so much practically, I think, that we can learn here. But look down at verse 12. It's brilliant. And Paul begins, if you like, reminding the Galatians of, of their relationship with each other. And it's a relationship that is at the heart of Paul's, and I've put that on your introduction, gospel ministry. This is what it's all about, if you like. Look at it. I plead with, I plead with you, brothers. Become like me, for I became like you. Listen to what he's saying there, but we'll come to that in a moment, the content of it, but also hear the tone of it. Look at what he says. Brothers. It's brothers and sisters if you like, but there's tenderness there, isn't there? There's warmth and love and affection. You don't often associate with that with Paul, do you? But it's here. Warmth and love. Oh, you may be about to say some pretty Tough things. But there'll be no doubt in the reader's minds as they open up this letter and read it out aloud, as they would in that early church, they know that this comes from a man who loves them. I want to, if you offer one little note of application, if I may, just here. I was talking about this with a couple of other friends who are ministers who are in ministry, full-time kind of paid ministry. And it says, watch your emails Watch your emails. Too often over the last 12 or so years, I've either received or had to comfort those who have received curt, critical, not encouraging emails. And that isn't to say that any of us involved in ministry, whether it's a Sunday school leader, a home group leader, a minister, wherever it may be, shouldn't have critical feedback on their ministry. That's important, it's right, and it's appropriate. But it's so easy, isn't it, to fire off an email that hasn't anything positive in it, that there's no encouragement, that there's no warmth, any brotherly affection is just taken out. Be careful. Be really careful. There have been tears amongst some of you because others of you have sent emails like that without any words of encouragement. Uh, just critique. And I just want to commend to you Paul's methodology here. Brothers, there's warmth, there's affection. Become like me, though, he says, for I became like you. We're going to look at both of those little phrases. Firstly, become like me. Well, like what? Paul is like saying... Like me in my Christian faith, in my Christian life, who stands firm, who lives out what I believe, who doesn't listen to these false teachers, even though their words seem a little bit more comforting at times. They seem a little bit easier to live out. No, Paul is saying, live like me, because I trust God alone through his word, the Bible. Paul said a similar thing to King Agrippa. If you want to have a look at that in Acts chapter 26, he was a prisoner at the time, he was in chains. So he doesn't, he doesn't walk up to a King Agrippa and say, oh, become like me. No, he's not saying become like me as in a prisoner. He's saying become like me as I trust the Lord Jesus Christ despite these awful circumstances I find myself in. But also say, Paul says it there, doesn't he? For I became like you. And he's probably reminding, giving the, the, the Galatians the context of gospel ministry here, saying he's reminding that he was willing to do anything he possibly could to get alongside the Galatians, to love the Galatians, to befriend the Galatians. If they went to the gym and did some funny spinning class, he would, they, he would do that as well. If they did Pilates, off oh, he went to Pilates. What a no. Great thing to do. Whatever they did, he was got involved with them. I even put, if, if they like knitting, he would take up knitting. But that was my other illustration because that's the worst thing that I could possibly do. But Paul put, let me put it in other words. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul put it this way to the church in Corinth. He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become th- all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Look at the ministry of Paul. Look at his attitude. Look at what he'd be willing to give up. A personal comfort. A personal preference. A family priority, maybe. A diary event. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 9 goes on and says this. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. That I might share in its blessings. That is, he's saying, that I might know and see the greatest blessing of all to see the Lord Jesus Christ come into someone's life and that they might know the forgiveness that only he can bring through his death on the cross. This is the ministry of Paul. It's summarized in just that first little part of of verse 12. But now he's going to go on in verse 12 through to pretty pretty much verse 16. And. and, uh, Remind the Galatians of his ministry amongst them, of his attitude toward them. But also, because it's so pertinent to this argument, their attitude towards him as well. He begins by saying, at the end of verse 12 there, you've done me no wrong. He's saying, looking back guys, things were great between us. There's an encouragement of a brother there. You've done me no wrong. It's like his introduction to his email. He's saying, we really get on so well, things were wonderful. Thank you. There's encouragement. Verse 13 uh, shows the context of what has been going on. He'd come to them because of some form of illness. He was on his first missionary journey. If you turn to the back of your Bibles, uh, just for a moment, um, just to the inside, the last page, actually, of the whole Bible. It's not numbered. But you'll see there Paul's missionary journeys on the top map on the inside part of your sheep. And you'll see that throughout the book of Acts, there's plotted three missionary journeys of Paul. He visits Galatia on his first missionary journey. You'll see there he's in Cyprus, and then he heads up um, to Pamphylia, and then on into Antioch, Iconium, and then down into Derbe as well, in the area of Galatia. You can have a look at that later if you like, uh, and plot those through. But that's the context in which uh, he, is, uh, he is speaking here. He'd come to them, though, because of some illness. Read about it, if you want, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. You've been in Cyprus, as I said. Pamphylia, south Turkey, then on into the region of Galatia, which is the uplands, if you like, of now what we call Turkey, and those cities I mentioned. That wasn't, that wasn't the original plan, though. He went because he had a medical issue, a bodily ailment, now we don't know what that is. There's numerous things written about it. It could be malaria, probably is. The swamps of Pamphylia, the coastal regions, very, very prone to people getting malaria. Paul and others would have had to retreat to the hills to make sure they get some respite. And it seems to be to him a very significant trial. But God used this suffering to bring, uh, the suffering of Paul, to bring the gospel to Galatia to the cities of Galatia but we know that don't we we know that that is the case sometimes in our own lives that God uses significant trials maybe in us corporately but perhaps in us individually as well to make sure that the gospel is known. Uh, known perhaps more in our hearts as we go through trials. Isn't that right? We begin to trust in the Lord Jesus a bit more. We, we realise that we may have been turning our back a bit and we need to pray more and we need to just cast our hearts onto him because we've been retreating. God uses suffering. But he also uses suffering to make him known as well as he had done here in Galatia. So whenever you're prevented from doing what you Perhaps have got plans. Consider the truth that the good plans that come are from a good shepherd. The sovereign Lord. And they are for a purpose. For our good and to make the gospel known. Now our job is simply, let's trust him in those situations. So we can't be sure what the illness was, but in verse 14 we know it was a trial to the Galatians... From the words uh, in the literal there, it, 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 many come to say it was, it was quite an unsightly thing and it was very, very unpleasant for Paul and for the Galatians as they cared for him. But still, note how Paul was received in his ministry by the Galatians as an angel. And even as Christ, it says there. And notice Paul doesn't say, oh, hang about, guys, you've gone a bit too far there. He doesn't say that, does he? Because he was like an angel. That is, he was a messenger of God, bringing the gospel to these people. Uh, and he was commissioned by Christ, and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ as his apostle, to speak of Christ. Jesus himself, back in Matthew 10, spoke of his disciples this way, as he commissioned him, he said, he who receives you receives me. Likewise, Paul is being received by the Galatians here as they recognise he was impo- appointed And empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ, but that was the past. That was the past. Things have changed. The Galatians who once received Paul, who loved Paul, in verse fifteen, what does he say? Commented, he says, "What's happened to all your joy, guys?" Once they would have done everything for Paul, as you see in verse fifteen, but now they are enemies. Verse sixteen. Look at the contrast and why that that contrast occurs. When they recognised Paul's authority as a messenger from Christ, empowered by Christ, they welcomed him. And when they did not like his message and the truth that he had told them, they treated him as an enemy. Why? Well, you might say they were fickle, you might say they were foolish. Simply, the Galatians didn't like some of the teaching that Paul had been telling them. They had been drawn to other teaching. It was more palatable, perhaps, in their circumstances. But the warning, I think, is is fairly simple. We need to be very careful that we are not selective as we hear and respond to God's Word. The Bible is not to be applied and lived out just in part, but as a whole. there will be teaching for all of us at different times in our lives that, that it would be easier if we could just, ooh, we could just ignore that little bit, please. It's, it just, it, it grates a bit. Or, you know, just for a, a momentary bit of pleasure. Oh, oh, if I just push that bit aside, that would be, no. But if we do, the warning is here. What happens? We become enemies of God. That not only of the message that is being proclaimed, but also of the author. So we're to contrast, you see, Paul's ministry and attitude to the Galatians, and contrast it to that of the ministry of the false teachers. So, so part where we are with, with Paul. We've seen a bit of what that is, looks like. And now let's look at the ministry of the false teachers, if we can, for a moment. Mainly in verse 17 through to the end, verse 20. Paul has spoken the truth, and we see, he's very frank, isn't he? They become enemies because of that the false teachers by contrast what are they they're zealous to win people over we see there there are many people who point to the fact that they seem to be using a phrase which is sort of it's empty words it's flattery to drag people away from the gospel oh they're zealous and don't hear that what paul is saying he's not saying being zealous is wrong uh, no not at all it just it's got to have a good purpose do you know that there? But they were teaching a different gospel. In fact, Paul says in chapter 1, doesn't he, there's no gospel at all. That is, they were adding to the freedom that is being bought by Jesus Christ on the cross. They're saying, hey guys, I I know Jesus did a good thing, but if you would only do these religious works, if you would only kind of add this stuff to the gospel, then you'll be saved. That's what he's saying. That's what they had been teaching, sorry. And Paul says, no, that's no gospel at all. But they, these guys, these false teachers that infiltrated the church in Galatia, oh, they, they just wanted to win hearts and people to themselves. They wanted followers. They wanted people to love them and appreciate them. Appreciate them. By contrast, Paul wanted it. Look at verse 19. He wanted Christ to be formed in them. That is, to, to Christ to mould them. For them to become more like Him, to trust Him more. How do we apply this whole section? Have you ever thought about what you look for in a minister of the gospel? I don't mean just a a church minister. You know, let's say you are looking for someone to help you with Sunday school or whatever it may be, or you know, in a home group situation, or even a church musician. To everyone, if you look, like, that makes the gospel known. What, what do you look for in them? I, I guess what we see here, just very briefly, is we mustn't be swayed by outward appearances. Paul was unsightly, I mean, literally, because of his illness and his razor-sharp teaching as he, as he proclaimed the truth. It, it wasn't well received. He'd become an enemy to them. He may have made them feel slightly uncomfortable as he challenged their lives with his teaching, as they disconnected what they said they believed with how they lived it out. But he taught them with love, and they were his dear children. Did he care for his own progress, his own health, his appearance? No. So primarily, we want gospel people who make, well, much of Christ in their lives, And in their teaching. I don't know if you remember back when we were looking through John's Gospel in home groups at the moment. Many of you remember where John says, uh, John the Baptist says in chapter 3 verse three. he says, Well, what does he say of Jesus? He must be greater. I must become less. Uh, The ministry of the false teachers was completely opposite to that. It was marked by a kind of zealous Self-service, they were probably very gifted communicators, very able, very savvy, maybe even very, very pleasant to look at, or whatever it may be. But by contrast, Paul is perhaps at this moment as an ill man, pretty ugly, unsightly, weak. His anguish for the Galatians as he poured his heart out to them would have been seen as weakness in that culture, as he pleads so he, could be wished, he wished he could be there with them, it would have been a very weak sign in that culture. But above everything, he was faithful. He was faithful. Now he taught the truth, he fought for the truth so that Christ might be formed in them. I don't want to embarrass the elders, I don't say much about them um, here at church, but uh, I'm honoured to work with men who give up themselves and who pray for you guys and pray for this church and sometimes with tears. But I want to say, what about you? What about you? As you take the gospel out to your family and your friends, perhaps if you're a Sunday school leader or a home group leader, which ministry best represents you here today? The ministry of Paul or the ministry of the false teachers? Paul believed the gospel, and there wasn't a disconnect between what he believed and how he lived it out. He loved the Galatians and wanted to make the gospel known to them. It was without compromise. It wasn't at arm's length. It was heart to heart. Always in the context of love. The false teachers, on the other hand, they were zealous, yes, of course, but for their own glory. And not the glory of the Lord Jesus. Paul was willing to lay down his life for for this church as Christ laid down his life for the church. So how will you respond to that gospel that has brought freedom for all who would trust in Christ? What's going to be, if you like, your ministry pattern? Let me finish, if I can, with a little story, an illustration, if you like, of one man who... I've been listening and reading a little bit about him over the last month or so. his name is Charles Simeon. in 1783 um, Charles Simeon became the minister of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. He remained the minister there for the next 53 years of his life. He was educated at Eton was a very privileged um, childhood from the age of eight until 18. Though he did say he would rather kill his own son than send him to that depraved place. (coughs) Then he was um, educated at Cambridge until 18. And you would expect with that kind of background that he'd be very much welcomed as he then went back to Cambridge to become a lecturer and a minister at the college within King's Chapel, uh, King's College, that he would be very much welcomed. But it was far from easy for Charles Simeon. The congregation didn't want to hear the gospel, they were... If you imagine stereotypical British church folk at the time, they wanted ceremony, they wanted it handsome, they wanted a witty, they wanted a fun, a jovial man who would have afternoon tea with the chaps and the ladies on the lawns of the college. They certainly didn't want Charles Simeon, who plainly and carefully and faithfully taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so very quickly there, the congregation became quite hostile to Charles Simeon. They employed a junior minister under him and banned him from preaching in the morning in his own church. They began to lock their boxed pews. I don't know if you know about boxed pews. You, know, you ever seen those pews that have little doors? All the free church guys go, what are you talking about? Anyway, <laughs> um, if you, Sometimes you have these pews that have little doors in, and they used to have locks on. And a family would buy a boxed pew. And after the morning service, they would lock them. And so Charles Simeon, as he came along in the afternoon uh, with some of the students, he began a service in the afternoon, early evening. They couldn't sit in the pews. And that carried on for nearly ten years. And the growing crowd only could meet in the aisles and around the pews, in various corners of the church, on little stools and little chairs. The other Cambridge faculty at the university hated hated him so much that they never talked to him. There was one moment, one solitary moment in his 53 years at Cambridge where one professor walked across a courtyard of grass and had a light conversation with him that lasted a minute. And in his memoirs he treasured that greatly. He was very alone at the university and he was challenged and criticised at every turn but he loved the people and he brought the gospel to them for 53 years years. He is now noted, I think, as probably one of the greatest preachers that this country has ever seen and heard, why he had convictions. He believed the gospel and lived in accordance with that gospel, whatever the cost, and like Paul, he taught the gospel in love. And many, many, many dear children became dear children of God through his ministry. I guess the challenge, and the very gentle challenge at the end, is what, what, what will be the pattern of your ministry and our ministry corporately? Will it be like Paul, serving the Lord Jesus Christ and making his gospel known, living out what we believe and say we believe? Or will it be the ministry of the false teachers who sought to serve themselves? Just a moment of quiet... Um, Just maybe pray, but I I do want us to maybe have a moment of questions if we can. We sometimes do this at the end of the service. We're running a good time today, Uh, so maybe a moment of quiet. Maybe you can think of something you'd like to ask, point of clarification. Then we'll have sort of five minutes of questions. Let's just pray in our own, the quietness of our own hearts to begin with, for just a couple of minutes.